Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. So I'm excited for our new series today. Uh, It's called Family Matters, not like the TV show, despite the feel and all that. Uh, But it is going to be a lot of fun. And it's a topic that impacts all of us because all of us have families, right? I mean, on the front side of this, out of the gate, I want to acknowledge that sometimes in church, if it's like, oh, we're doing a family series, uh, it feels like maybe we're kind of excluding some people along the way. Uh, Honestly, the church collectively has been guilty at times of focusing so much on the family that we miss out on people in different seasons and different stages of life. And it can feel like we exclude uh, maybe those who are single, uh, maybe those who are wanting to have a family in a certain way and it's not happening or, or those who are younger. And the thing for all of us is all of us came from somewhere, right? All of us have a family. And so the way we're gonna talk about family over these next few weeks, uh, it's gonna apply for all of us. And in fact, I'm just gonna give you like a quick rundown of where we're gonna be over our next few weeks together. Today uh, is gonna be kind of an introduction, which means at the end of today, you may have more questions than answers. You know how we like to do that sometimes around here. Uh, next week, we're gonna make it really practical. Okay, so if you leave this week and you're like, what was the point of that? Come back next week and you'll find out. But it'll get really practical because uh, I am gonna give you the best question that you could possibly ask in the context of family. How's that for like a pitch to you? But I really mean it. It's a powerful question. It's an extraordinary thing that if we embraced it, it could really change a lot in our family relationships. Uh, Even if you're not a religious person or a church person, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're trying it out. Come back next week, okay? Even if you don't like this week, come back next week because it works for all of us. Uh, Then on the third week of the series, we're going to talk about conflict. So fighting, quarreling, bickering within the family. And just to make sure like we're all on the same page, how many of you have ever, ever had a fight in your family of origin? Like show of hands. Yeah, cool. So 50% of you are lying already, and we're like five minutes in, so (laughs) we'll talk about that too. But uh, on week four, we're actually going to talk about reconciling broken relationships as well. Uh, What does it look like to heal in the midst of a family context? So these weeks should be incredibly practical and and hopefully really helpful for all of us. But um, like I mentioned, today's just kind of an introduction. And in some ways, my goal, once again, is to just kind of frustrate everybody a little bit. Uh, as we talk about family matters and, and what this ideal picture of a family in God's eyes look like, I would imagine some of you might be like, oh, that sounds so conservative, right? That, that sounds so old-fashioned. Like, does this guy really believe this stuff works today? So maybe I'll offend you in that way. Other things I think I'll say, you'll be like, that's way too progressive, right? Does that even line up with the Bible? Like, can he talk like that? And, and so my goal is to frustrate all of us in that way as we talk together. I want to live up and live in that tension. But I think the thing that makes series like this so difficult in some ways is that our experiences are so diverse as it relates to family. That our experiences across the board, like some of us, uh, we're in blended families. For one reason or another, we're in blended families. Some of us maybe are in more of a traditional family. Maybe you have a nuclear family. Maybe you don't. I don't know. Uh, Some of us, we're in our second marriage and our third marriage or in between marriages. We're waiting to be married. Maybe you're raising kids. Maybe you're raising somebody else's kids. Maybe you adopted kids or you're fostering kids. I mean, there's so much diversity in what family can really mean for all of us. And so this whole conversation in so many ways for all of us right now, it's so challenging. It's challenging to know what our families should look like in a rapidly changing world. And yet it is so incredibly relevant too. Like in the midst of a rapid changing world, what should a family actually look like? And, and what I was trying to figure out is like in the midst of all of this diversity, what do our families actually have in common? 
and this isn't an exhaustive list, but I found two things uh, that came to mind that all of our families have in common or that all of us have in common as it relates to our family. And the first is this, that as it relates to our families of origin, we didn't have any choice in the matter, right? You just showed up one day and there they all were. <laughs> like, uh, the thing uh, that I could come up with that we all have in common is that when it comes to your family of origin, you've probably heard the phrase, right? You can pick your friends, you can't pick your family. And, and that's why uh, probably... If you're like me, when you were in middle school, you hung out with some friends that you were like, could I pick them to be my family, right? Because they like have cereal for dinner and, and that's amazing. Or it seems like there's no rules there. Like they stay up way late. And, uh, when you were that age, maybe middle school or early high school, uh, you maybe had this thought at some point about somebody else's family. And you thought, man, I wish my family were more like them. Right? I wish my family was more like that. And the reason probably all of us at some point have, have had a thought like that is because family comes with challenges, right? Family can be difficult. Uh, the word father is not an emotionally neutral word, is it, for any of us? Mother, brother, sister, right? Whenever you hear those words and you think about your family, there's some type of emotion there. It, it elicits some kind of response in us. And there's this information, there's background, and there's chaos probably, and there's joy, and there's certainly a story and great memories and maybe not so great memories. And, and it's just not an emotionally neutral territory that we're walking into together, this area of family. So it's a challenging subject, but I think the other thing that all of us have in common as it relates to our families is this. It's that no one you're related to is as smart as you are, right? <laughs> like maybe, maybe you've grown a little more than me and, and you don't think that way anymore, but I would be willing to bet at some point, right? Again, probably like late middle school, early high school, you looked around at your family and you're like, I could figure this out for all of them. Right? Like, like, I could fix this. If they would just do what I tell them to do, everything would work out. And so you're thinking, like, if I go to the family reunion, I'm just going to get on the mic, right? Or I'm going to get up in front of everybody, and I'm going to be like, look, like, you need to take a bath, and you need to quit drinking, and you, like, you need to just, like, go back to school and figure it out, right? And, like, we all think we know better than the people around us if everybody were just as smart as we are. And yet, as you get older, right, there's other stages where it feels exactly the opposite. It feels like I didn't get the manual, Okay, like I don't, I don't know how to navigate this season or how to get through this. And there's been so many times for me as, as a dad, uh, my daughter turns five this week. And for me, there've been so many times, the longer we go that I'm like, I don't know how to do this. Right? No, nobody told me, nobody told me what we should do or shouldn't do. And there's no instruction manual. And I feel like I don't have any answers at all. And as parents, I think all of us at some point get there. When your kids are little, you know everything, right? But the older they get, the less you seem to know. And then in the midst of all of that dynamic, here's another tricky thing. If you're a Christian, right, and, and you review scriptures and you open it up and you're like, you know what, let's see what God has to say about family. Let's look for some stellar examples. What's really odd is there are almost no good examples of family in the Bible. It's funny because we hear a lot about biblical family, right? And what does it look like to have a biblical family? But if I like ran down the list of what happens in all the biblical families, you would be like, is that an R-rated movie or worse? Like it's chaos in there. I mean, this notion of biblical family, like even Jesus' parents, okay, Mary and Joseph, they lost him when he was 12 years old, just straight up lost him, went on to a different town and were like, wait a minute, where did he go? He was their only child at that point, right? Like, they, they didn't really have a huge excuse. So it was just this kind of messy thing. And if you think about how the whole thing got started, right? You go back to Adam and Eve in the very beginning, and God creates man, and it's this powerful, poignant moment along the way. And how long did that story go well? About a chapter, right? Like, it, it didn't last very long. And, and right after God announces it's not good for man to be alone, Adam turns around, and he chooses Eve over God. 
He, he follows Eve's lead over God's lead. And uh, there's an author named John Eldridge who writes a lot about male and female relationships. And he said this one time in one of his books. He said, man chose woman over God in the garden, and man has been choosing women over God ever since. <laughs> there's some truth in that, right? <laughs> there's some truth in that. But from the very beginning, things go bad. And if you know the story, right, one son kills the other, one brother kills another, Cain kills Abel, and then we're off to the races in every story, in every family throughout the entire Old Testament. It's just dysfunction after dysfunction after dysfunction and chaos after chaos. I mean, they're horrible by modern standards. The first civil war that happened in the nation of Israel, God's people, happened because King David and his son got into a fight. And they start arguing, they start disputing, and eventually several thousand people are killed and are maimed and are left dead later because of this father-son conflict that if you actually read it in the text, you, if you're like me, you're like, they could have handled that differently. <laughs> like there's another way to, to handle all this. But the Old Testament basically has no good examples for us as it relates to family. And then you get to the New Testament. This is where we're going to hang out, okay? Because I don't really know how to explain to you in weighty enough terms how significant or, or how powerful the emotional impact of what happens in the New Testament really is for us. So we'll probably come back to this a lot throughout the series. But what happens in the New Testament is this guy named Paul who became a Christian after trying to stop the church. He became a Christian after trying to stop the Christians. And then he took the teachings of Jesus and he started spreading it throughout uh, the Roman and the Greek world, throughout the Mediterranean rim. And he was talking about what it looked like to actually live out the way that Jesus taught. And he started to insert these new ideas about how family was supposed to work. And, and to understand uh, how, how radical these ideas were, you have to understand how foreign they were in their context. For us, it sounds like common sense, but in their proper context, like these ideas were so foreign and they were so new and they had never been tried or tested. There had never been a culture or a society built around the things that Paul started to teach about what family could look like, which again, were a reflection of what Jesus taught about how people could be valued, the value of men and women and children. And in a minute, I'm going to read really quickly just kind of like an overview of what Paul and a few other writers uh, said or the New Testament has to say about family. And for some of it, this is like the old-fashioned part, right? When you hear me read what the text has to say, you're going to think like, I don't know, that sounds like something my grandparents bought into, right? That sounds kind of old-fashioned or outdated or I've heard that stuff before. And in our world, that's true, right? In our world, this stuff is common sense and in some ways uh, we've heard it all before. But here's what I don't know if I can fully articulate when these words were written and when this teaching was first introduced into the world it was radical and it was brand new and, and much of the teaching that we're going to look at together about family it has so permeated american culture that it feels like common sense to us we've just grown up to expect it but it was brand new in the world especially what paul had to say about women and children because in this culture that paul was writing to they viewed women just a little above cattle Okay, that, that's not a joke. Like, they literally kind of viewed women as property. And when it came to children, I, I mean, they, they wouldn't even name their children sometimes for years and years and years because the mortality rate was so bad that they didn't even know, like, is this kid going to make it? People often in the ancient world, they wouldn't even leave their own inheritance to their own children. They would go find a child that they thought would be more responsible and would carry on their inheritance in a powerful way, and then they would adopt them and leave their inheritance to them, which some of you are like, that's a good idea. I've never thought about that. But Jesus, one time, in, the, in this context, right, in this culture, Jesus one time was doing a talk to adults, 
just like this, right? Gathered together, talking about what God is like and what God's kingdom is. And then in the middle of that, he paused and he stopped and he said, let the children come to me. And we read that now and it feels like a cute Sunday school moment. Like Jesus probably had a little lamb under his shoulder and like, come on kids. Like you were like, that's cute. But man, in the first century, it was radical. Uh, the men gathered around would have been like, what? You don't let a child in the space of adults. You, you don't let a child come before somebody so powerful. And Jesus goes, no, 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 bring them to me. And by the way, the kingdom of heaven is like these. The kingdom of heaven is like these children. So Jesus elevates the status of women and of children. And the apostle Paul comes along. And in light of Jesus' teaching, he does the same. He starts to elevate the status of women and children, and I am telling you, there was never a culture to this point that operated under the assumption that women and children had the same value as men in the world. And in fact, in every culture since that introduction that has embraced this type of biblical worldview, in every culture that's embraced that worldview, women and children have thrived. And I know there's some like recent exceptions in our culture, if you're thinking about that, we'll talk about it. But uh, by and large, every culture that genuinely embraces a biblical worldview, genuinely lives it out, women and children thrive, and the opposite is true as well. In every culture that doesn't embrace this Christian worldview or this Christian set of standards and how we ought to treat one another, it is women and it is children who primarily suffer. And we have like real life examples of this happening. Um, if you recall and pay attention to the news, in 2021, a group called the Taliban, remember them? they took back over control uh, of the nation of Afghanistan. And I just saw a report this week talking about what's happening to women in that country, that their rights that they had fought so, that we had fought alongside them so hard for for so long, they're disappearing again. They can't go out in public. They can't publicly even worship their God. They can't worship and practice their religion in the way that they used to be able to have the freedom to do. They can't go to school. And again, in any culture that ha has deviated or maybe never embraced this worldview that men and women and children can be equals. You see it's the women and it's the children who suffer the most. But the New Testament opened the door for women and children in a way that no other culture had ever done. So when the Apostle Paul said and read and wrote some of the things uh, that I'm going to read to you in just a second, it was mind-boggling. I mean, it was so disruptive to the way that the world worked and the way that family worked. It was so unsettling for men and so hopeful for women and children. And the basis of what Paul said about family was this. He, he viewed Jesus who went to the cross. And he said when Jesus went to the cross, he died for all men and all women and all children equally. And in that moment, women became heirs to the kingdom of God alongside men. They became citizens of the kingdom of God, just like men could be citizens. And think about this. In a, in a moment in history, in a culture where these women may not have been allowed to be citizens of their own country, Right? They may not have been allowed to become Roman citizens. They were considered citizens on, of heaven, on par with their husbands as equals and as heirs and even with their children. And it was so new and it was so radical and it breathed so much life into this culture and into this community. It's fascinating that it even survived the first century because it was so radical and so different. There was nobody eager and waiting to hear this kind of teaching about what society could look like. What sounds commonplace to us today was so futuristic to first century Christians that they couldn't even wrap their head around the fact that at one point this would become the norm for a society. But the Apostle Paul, he took the implications of Jesus' teachings and, and he applied it on family and said, in light of what Jesus taught and what Jesus did, this is how family should work. And here's a quick summary. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul wrote, children 
Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. We like this one. Okay, this is a good one. You can hold on to this one for your kids. You can be like, look, God said so. Okay, like, listen up. He says that about their relationship. Uh, Elsewhere, he says this. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And some of you, like, you feel the hackles going up in your back, right? You're like, mm-mm, heard that before. And this verse has been taken out of context, and it has been used, and it has been abused in so many ways, and it sounds so backwards. And if you're like, not my husband, okay, I'm not done. Because Paul goes on, and the rest of the verse says, Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. And do you know why uh, Paul had to say, do not be harsh with them? It's because men in this culture and men in this moment were harsh with everyone. Right? They were harsh with their dogs, they were harsh with their horses, and they were harsh with their wives because they kind of viewed them as equal status or similar status. And Paul, again, it sounds so well duh to us, right? But Paul, to that kind of a culture, says you are to love, right? Not, not own, not take advantage of, not look for an opportunity to trade her in. It, he says you are to love your wife and don't be harsh to her. And again, this sounds obvious, but in other words, Paul's saying, as a Christian man, it matters how you treat your wife. And, and for us, we're like, yeah, of course it matters, but this was brand new at the time, and it elevated the status of women. In uh, the book of Colossians, Paul says, fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Other uh, translations say, don't exasperate your children. And as a dad, like even 21st century dad, I think this is one of the commands in the New Testament that I probably violate the most often and the most naturally, and I just have one child, okay? But, but it is so easy for us as parents, and, and especially I think as fathers, to unintentionally, whether it's compare our kid to another kid and, and put this weight on them, right? Or, or just try and communicate high expectations in a way that, that just gets them frustrated, exasperated, worn out, where it's like, man, I can never live up to it. He says, listen, in the first century, he's like, fathers, I know your tendency, Okay, and, and I know your tendency is to treat your children like slaves. Your tendency is to treat your children like the men and women that you own. Your, your tendency is to view your children like animals. No, your children, Paul says, remember, Jesus welcomed them. Jesus said it's okay to put them in the front row. It, it's okay to elevate their status. And so fathers, be careful how you speak to your children. And then Peter gets in the game too. Peter, who uh, followed Jesus and then unfollowed Jesus, he denied uh, ever knowing Jesus. And then once Jesus came back from the dead, they had breakfast on the beach and Jesus reinstates Peter as a leader in the church movement. Peter wrote to first century Christians and he said this, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And again, we're like, treat them with respect? Isn't that common sense? Maybe for us. But in the first century, when these words were written, it was not common at all. Uh, not in the first century at all. This is very futuristic. It, it, Paul, or sorry, Peter is saying in this moment, husbands, take into consideration how your wife is feeling. <laughs> like, like, create room for her. Respect her. And, and his first century audience, I can imagine, were like, you mean the wife I didn't get to choose? Right? You mean the wife that my parents picked out for me like five years ago because she was the third daughter and we traded a goat and like I just ended up with her? Like that's her? That's who I'm supposed to love? That's who I'm supposed to respect? And Paul would say, yes. This is what Jesus is calling you to. This is the standard for how we should treat and love one another. 
when uh, Peter writes about women, wives, being heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. He's not talking about like marrying somebody rich because they have a great inheritance coming, but rather he's talking about the fact that at the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your wife. And she's not just your wife, she is also your sister in Christ. And you are joint heirs, that you have a heavenly father, but she also has a heavenly father and it is the same heavenly father and you both operate as equals with equal dignity in front of God. So in summary, this is what the New Testament says about family matters, okay? It says, husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't aggravate your children. So I'll pray and we'll go home. <laughs> Wait, no, of course not. Like, you're like, that's all you've got for me, man? Like, it, it seems like common sense. And if we're honest, I think all of that that we just laid out, it seems a little idealistic, doesn't it? It seems a little old-fashioned, and, and it brings us to this fork in the road in our discussion. And, and what we're going to do with the rest of our time is I'm going to elevate this tension. That's going to be the context for every other week of this series as well. It, it's this tension between the ideal of what our families could be like and the reality of what our families are. That if your family's like mine, which I would be willing to bet it is, that at some point there is a gap between real and ideal. There is a gap between the ideal family that we long for and this image that, that guys like Jesus and Peter and Paul have laid out for us. There is a gap between that ideal and the reality of our families. You don't come from an ideal family, do you? And if you're married and you've got kids, you're, you're probably not creating an ideal family, if you're honest. It may be more ideal than the one you came from. It may be a little less ideal than the one you came from. But there is the reality of our families, and then there's the ideal of our families and there's this gap in between them. And here's what's so remarkable about Jesus. Here's the thing that Jesus did over and over and over and over, but especially as it relates to male-female relationships and especially as it relates to family. Over and over and over again, what Jesus did is Jesus pointed and he talked towards an ideal that was so lofty and so high, and yet he refused to condemn those who fell short of it. Jesus just lived in this tension. He lived in this gap. He spoke to the ideal of what family could look like. I mean, he constantly pointed people in the direction of what appeared to be an unattainable ideal. And yet he didn't condemn anyone when they fell short of that ideal either. He, he didn't dumb down the ideal and be like, it's okay, it doesn't really matter. Like, no, no, he held on to the ideal. But he always offered grace if it wasn't attained. Maybe a different way of saying this, and this is such a powerful idea, I mean, even if it's not related to your family, this is such a powerful idea about how Jesus views you and how Jesus treats all of us. Jesus always raised the standard, and at the same time, he always deepened the grace. He would raise the standard, and he would deepen the grace over and over again. I mean, Jesus taught to an ideal. He would say, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or the kingdom of God is like that, and it was always expansive. It was always more than what people thought. Jesus frequently raised the standard. And in fact, uh, there's a moment where he does this. It's recorded in Matthew chapter five. Uh, Jesus redefined the idea of adultery and in so doing made every man an adulterer and then forgave all of them, all like at the same time. And, and, and that culture, just like in ours, like people knew what adultery meant. Like it, it was the physical thing, it happened. And, and so Jesus says, hey, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But then he raises the standard. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And listen, I will only speak for the men in the room, okay? I don't know what it's like to experience life as a woman, but 
Jesus made an adulterer of every man there. Okay, <laughs> like, like you've committed adultery, if you've even looked lustfully at a woman, he took the standard and he raised it. And if we read it, just like his first century audience, if we read it, we're like, oh no, Jesus, right? Like, wh- what are you gonna do to us? Because you just made all of us guilty. You just raised the standard so high, none of us could reach it. And Jesus says, I'll forgive you. He raised the standard and he deepened the grace. The standard went higher and the grace went deeper. And when it comes to family, he and those who heard him teach did the same thing. He raised the standard so extraordinarily high and yet deepened the grace at the same time. So the tension and the decision that ultimately we have to make when it relates to our families and the way that we try and live and lead out our family life, it's are we willing to embrace an ideal that may never become a reality in our current family Or will we be tempted to lose sight of the ideal to feel better about where we actually are? Are we willing to embrace an ideal that we may never reach or are we gonna lower the standard to feel better about where we're actually at? Are we willing to embrace an ideal as it relates to our family knowing we may never live up to it and for some of us it may even seem too late to live up to it? Or will we do the easy thing and decide now I'm gonna lose sight of all that and I'm gonna abandon that ideal I'm just gonna declare the way that it is as normal? It's tension filled. Right? And, and perhaps the most extreme example of where Jesus did this took place within the context of some religious leaders trying to trap him within his own words. Uh, they heard Jesus, at, at the same time that he was teaching about adultery, they heard him teach about divorce. And, and they saw this contradiction between what Moses had taught and what Jesus had to say. And they saw an opportunity because they are always trying to catch Jesus slipping up. And just real proactively, I mean, if family is a loaded topic, I know divorce is such a loaded and such an emotional topic. And the first thing I want you to hear from me today is if that's a part of your story, the thing we have over the coffee bar is still true. Okay, your story matters, and there's space for that here. So you're not going to receive any condemnation from me. You might feel a little uncomfortable as we listen to Jesus, okay, but we're, we're trying to live in the tension today. Uh, but man, I, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement today about what God thinks about divorce or anything like that. That's a little outside of the scope of what we're trying to talk about. But I know, right, this is such an emotional topic. It is so full of tension in and of itself. But Jesus was comfortable with the tension. And if we want to follow him, we need to learn to be too. So what happens is these Pharisees show up. And the text says, some Pharisees came to test Jesus. And they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And again, they're trying to trap Jesus because in that culture at that time, they had this version of no-fault divorce that makes ours look so tame in comparison. I mean, there was no attorneys, no fees, no depositions, no juries, no taking statements, no story, right? Essentially, in that time, the way that a man could divorce a woman if he wanted to is he would say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and it was done for any reason, for no reason, right? He he could do it. And again, this was tilted towards men. A man could do that, and he could dissolve the marriage at any time and, and pronounce his own divorce and kick a woman out, but a woman could never do that back to a man in this culture. And, and so they heard Jesus teaching something different than that law. They heard Jesus teaching something different, and when they heard Jesus teach, it seemed to conflict with Moses, and they were always trying to catch Jesus conflicting with Moses because Jesus made some big claims about who he was. And, and if Jesus really was who he claimed to be, and if Jesus really was from God, then certainly everything that he taught would line up with everything that Moses taught, because Moses was their guy at that time. But Jesus replies to this question, and Jesus says, haven't you read, which is so insulting, because these are some of the best read guys in the culture, right? The best read guys. He goes, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female, 
and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, the Pharisees, they're asking this question, and they're talking about right now, right? They're like, right now, in their cultural moment, like, is it lawful to do this or do that? And Jesus goes back to the beginning. Jesus goes to the ideal, right? Jesus raises the standard, and, and there's the tension, like right there, Jesus wasn't afraid of it because it's like when you take me back to what's ideal and it conflicts with what's real, it makes us horribly uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't, we don't know what to do with that tension. But Jesus goes back to the beginning and he basically says, hey, this whole question about divorce, it's kind of irrelevant because you're just revealing to me that you don't understand what marriage is in the first place. That God made these two people one so when they get married, they become one, and you're trying to unone what God wanted, and it doesn't work out. Jesus says, look, you're looking at the real, but you've lost sight of the ideal. Right? You're looking at the real, but you've lost sight of the standard. And Jesus is extraordinarily comfortable bringing both to you. He, he's not unaware of the reality that was happening in that world then or the reality that happens in our world now. Jesus is like, look, I understand. Sometimes things don't work out. Right? I, I understand that people get divorced, and I understand that there's got to be a mechanism, right? particularly in his culture. He's like, I understand there's got to be a mechanism that we've got to come up with a way to protect women from men so that men don't have all the power. He's like, I, I get that. But Jesus is like, but I'm not going to lose sight of the fact that in the beginning, divorce wasn't the plan. Right? In, in the beginning, this wasn't the way that it was supposed to be. In the beginning, God created it in such a way that two people become one, and you can't unone what God made one. And, and they're like, what do we do with that? Right? There, there's this tension, and they're living it. They're like, what, what do we do with that? And it's my favorite thing, because the Pharisees started this conversation as a trap to try and catch Jesus. But then Jesus, and the way he talks about this, it's like so extraordinarily that then they get curious, and they're like, they're confused, and they're like, well, wait a minute. So, so they ask, why then? They asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus offers a harsh and direct answer. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way in the beginning. See, again, Jesus is raising the standard. Jesus is going back to that ideal, and it's tough, isn't it? Like, I mean, again, it, it's a part of some of our stories. It's a part of so many of our families at one point or another, whether you've directly experienced divorce or whether you're just kind of a part of the line that it showed up somewhere. It's tough, and then the, what do we do with that kind of standard? When there's the reality of our lives and then there's this ideal that seems so unattainable, Jesus says, you carry it. Wait a minute, like that's so unrealistic, right? People change, things happen, to which Jesus would say like, I know, that's why I'm here. And so, like, maybe we ask questions, like, so wait, Jesus, are you against divorce? And you'd say, yeah. So wait, wait, what are you going to do to divorced people, Jesus? And Jesus would say, I'm not going to do anything to them. Hey, I'm, I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to give my life for them. Raise the standard, deepen the grace. Right? But, but it seems like you're letting us off the hook, right? So which is it? Like, is it a rule or is it not a rule? And Jesus, I think, would just go, yes. <laughs> yes. Raise the standard, deepen the grace. And, and there's this tension that Jesus frequently lived in that we dare not resolve between the ideal he calls us to and the reality he meets us in. Right? It is this tension. Uh, we've talked about before uh, the Jesus who is full of truth 
and full of grace. He is not a half measure of either. He is all truth all the time and all grace all the time. And it creates this tension that we dare not resolve because when we resolve it, we lose something. And what Jesus is instructing you and instructing me to do is to follow him in the complexity of family life, family life and to carry the tension between what is real and what I see around me and the ideal that it seems like very few people ever actually embrace and ever actually attain. And so our question is, will we embrace a standard that many of us have or will fall short of, or will we redefine terms in order to make us feel better about where we are? Will we embrace a standard that we may not and likely will not reach, or will we redefine terms to feel better about where we are. That, that, that this is what the ideal family looks like and though I may never attain it, I'm not gonna take my eye off this North Star of guidance of what could be and maybe what should be as it relates to family. Like, like if you have kids and you've gone through this, right, are you willing to direct your kids towards a destination that maybe you never reached or are you gonna redefine normal for them? See, the thing is, if you follow Jesus into this tension, and again, this tension is like the context for the rest of the series. So some of you are like, we got three more weeks. Like, come on, man. But if you follow Jesus into this, from time to time, you will feel uncomfortable about your current situation. Uh, some of you, the second I said divorce, you're like, I'm out, right? This guy doesn't get it, a and I get that. But as followers of Jesus, I don't think he left us with any other option. I, I don't think he left us with any other option to just step into this tension, to carry this tension. And remember, the first century Christians embraced a way of treating one another that was extraordinarily radical for their day. Right? Christian men learned to love their wives as equals, and that was radical for its time. It seems obvious to us, and it certainly seems right to us today, but they embraced the teachings of Jesus and others when they were nothing or anything but normal. And when it comes to family, that high ideal even for us today, it can create an intolerable tension. It can create that tension where we ask, are we willing to embrace this standard that some of us have or will fall short of? Or, like, if we do that, if we embrace that standard, are we gonna deal with the grief and the pain and the regret that comes along with that, knowing that God's grace for us is so broad and is so wide and is so deep that you can never exhaust the riches of it? Like, will we do that? Will we go there and just embrace what's in our stories or are we gonna opt to change the rules and, and decide that that stuff doesn't count anymore? We don't need those verses anymore. We've moved past that and create a system where the way it is just feels comfortable. I'm telling you, if we do that, we lose something important. We lose something vital and significant about how families are supposed to work. And, and you know the thing that makes this seemingly intolerable tension much more tolerable is when you think about our children. That, that all of us want our children to experience something better than we have, right? I, I mean, I've, I have never met a divorced adult who doesn't want better for their kids. It, like, we dare not normalize it. We dare not normalize it. I mean, do you want your daughters to grow up to marry men who will trade up in a couple of years? Of course not. Of course not. No loving parent wants that. Uh, every, every single mom, which uh, single moms, single dads, they're heroes, okay? Every single mom they pray that their little girl will one day meet a man, right, who, who will partner with her and cherish her till death do them part, and, and that their sons will find role models who lead them to become men of character and who do the right thing and who live up to that ideal and who honor women, right? It's so obvious when it relates to our kids that, yeah, we're holding on to the ideal. Yeah, we want something better for our kids. So here's the thing today. It's a lot of context. It's a lot of setup. I know it's a lot of tension that we step into. But for the next few weeks, we're gonna get practical beyond this. 
Okay, and we're gonna look at the ideal in the context of a less than ideal world. We're gonna look at ideals for family matters in families that are so far from ideal. And we're gonna point to a better future. And there's gonna be some handles for all of us. Okay, so if you're single, maybe this series could leave you with a new picture of what could be for your future. Maybe this will give you a vision of what you can look for down the road that you don't have to settle. If you're in a family where the ideal feels out of reach, you're in the majority, by the way, so were the believers in the first century. And yet they embraced teachings of Jesus and his followers, and they embraced this unattainable truth while clinging to his grace. They lived in the tension. And wherever you find yourself, wherever this lands with you today, for all of us, there's extraordinary, extraordinary grace that Jesus meets us where we are and and he forgives us despite the ways that we've missed the mark. There is this tension that we dare not resolve because the future of our families hinges on it. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that you give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard and the courage to do it the courage to apply it. And and it can be so uncomfortable. It can be so difficult. It can be so emotional for all of us. But God, I pray that you would meet us where we are, that we could catch the vision for your standard, for your ideal of what family could and should look like. And at the same time, that we would receive your grace for the ways that we missed the mark. God, that we could step into that tension just like you did and not seek to resolve it, but that we could live in it. And in so doing, over the next few weeks as we talk more practically about how to apply the ideal that you have for our families. God, that we could discover life the way you designed it to work. God, help us not be afraid to step into the tension. Again, meet each person right where they need today and give them the courage to move forward with you throughout this next week. We pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.